Bridging the gap between the eye test and the analytics, it's the Staff and Graph Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Dory and Ian Tullock. Welcome to the Staff and Graph Podcast. Ian, how you doing? Not too bad. We're over a month now without any live sports. I think everyone's kind of slowly getting used to the new normal. They say that it takes about 28 or 30 days for you to to form a new habit, to get used to the way that things are going. And I feel like a lot of us are slowly starting to get used to this weird way of life. I'm hanging in there. I don't know. I have my good days. I have my bad days. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. I'm definitely doing better than your EA SHL team, based on what I'm seeing on Twitter. Do you want to just give everyone an update on what happened in one of the games you played in the last week? Yeah, yeah. so I've been playing a lot of NHL 20 lately, just because there's literally nothing else to do. There's no hockey. So I've been playing with Steve Dangle. I've been playing with James Myrtle, a few other guys that people might know, Mikey Stevens. And we pulled our goalie. We were down by one. Was it a tie game? Or, no, I think you were down by one. I can't remember if it was a delayed penalty. Okay, we're yeah. down by one. We're losing by one goal with a minute left. And when you pull your goalie, your user goalie comes out. This is the mode where everyone controls one player. And a computer takes over for our goalie. The other team ices the puck because we had the power play. It was a six on four. They ice it. Our computer goes to pick the puck up in the, like after it goes behind the net, comes out in front in the crease. Our computer player picks it up in the crease and proceeds to skate it directly into the net. That's exactly how my last couple weeks have been going. You it's got just, an own goal because a computer-generated player skated the puck into your own net. The CPU, baby. This is Thanks so much, EA. Really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, that's, that's a what glitch gonna, that they might want to get resolved. Uh, so so moving forward here, we're going to be talking about some awards, and just like my NHL 20 stories, I, f- I feel like there's going to be a bit of controversy. I feel like we're going to piss some people off, especially me with my Leon Dreisaitl take that's coming later in the pod, but I think we'll save the heart trophy for the end, because that's the big juicy one. Where did you want to start, Rachel? We're going to go through our awards ballots and try to break down why we think certain players deserve to be in the top three. And we probably have a bit of a nerdier take than the the mainstream media. Yeah, so when we do these awards, we're going to do things... Um, we'll vote on the same things, who would be our top three, but it will be based on stats that we believe maybe should be taken more seriously. So the Selkie isn't just going to be defensive player that scores the most goals. It's going to be who's actually good. Um, so I was thinking we start at the Calder because I feel like that's, um, one that's going to generate some conversation. All right. Rookie of the year, best first year player in the NHL. I got to think the Kale McCarr Quinn Hughes debate is at the very top. And we kind of touched on this in the last podcast with Harmon Dial. It's hard to go wrong with either player, but what right now, I guess if the season's officially over, if we're to say right now, the season's basically done. Who are you picking as your Calder, Hughes or McCarr? Um, I think I would take uh, Quinn Hughes, um, but my top three would be Hughes, McCarr, and Dominic Kubalik in Chicago. Um, what? Yeah, so... You have him above John Marino and Adam Fox? I'm very disappointed. Well, okay, so Kubalik has a higher 5-on-5 goals per 60 than Ovechkin, Matthews, and I believe Pasternak, which is pretty high company to be keeping this season. So, sounds like he doesn't play many minutes at even strength and he's riding a super high shooting percentage. I don't know. I don't know if that's how we're handing out this award, but make the case. Make the case. I'm listening. All right. So I think with Kubelik, A, he's played every game the Blackhawks have played. And I think that that's kind of important when you're talking about uh, a rookie and, and being able to stack up against everyone else. He's got 30 goals as a rookie. And now he's a little bit older, um, but... 30 goals is nothing to shake your head at at a 24-year-old. Any team would be taking 30 goals. Um, he only has 16 penalty minutes, which when you think of rookies, you also think that that's potentially there's some undisciplined stuff there. That doesn't, I'm not really um, hard up on that one. But the number that really pops to me, he has 26 even strength goals. So all but four of his goals are, 
are even strength. He only has four power play goals. Three of them are game winners. And yeah, he's shooting a little bit high. He's shooting 19%, but he plays 14 minutes a game. And like realistically for a rookie, like you can't ask for much more. 26 even strength goals is a pretty high number. Like that's, that's going to rank in the top 20, maybe even the top 10 by the time the year's said and done. Because a lot of the league's premier goal scorers do a lot of their scoring on the power play. So for me, I think that that kind of gives him a leg up because he's shown in his first year he can score at even strength. He doesn't play 10 minutes a night. He plays uh, 14 to 15 minutes a night, and he gets like 50% zone starts. So it's not like he's totally being only used on offense. And so for me, like that, there's a lot of pretty good stats there, and he's got good possession numbers as well. So I think realistically, it's not going to matter in the grand scheme of things because you've got Hughes and McCarr, but to have somebody that can score 30 goals and over 90% of them be at even strength, that's pretty damn good. And Kirby Doc had a pretty solid year in Chicago too. It's too bad that overall their team as a whole isn't anywhere what it used to be, but Kubalik, I believe he scored that baseball swing goal yes, against did. Toronto, one of the games I was doing. I remember watching that just going, who do I blame for this? And I, I think I just blamed God because it was no one's fault. But So who's your third guy? So I'm debating with myself internally between Adam Fox and John Marino. Adam Fox, defenseman on the Rangers, played basically secondary competition at even strength, got second power play time. So he wasn't putting up monster point totals, but if you're watching the games closely and you're looking at him breaking the puck out of his end, spending more time on offense than defense, I like the way that he defends the neutral zone when it comes to how aggressively he forces teams to dump the puck in. Again, he's sheltered. He's a first-year player, so he's not someone I'm going to put at the top of my list like a Quinn Hughes who is facing top comp or Kale McCarr who is just ridiculous offensively. Yeah, but John I re- Marino I can get on board with for sure. So, And that's, that's where I'm talking myself to John Marino above Adam Fox because even though... I think Adam Fox is the more talented player over Marino and if you're asking me, you're down by a goal late in the game... Who are you going to put on the ice to help make something happen? Yeah, I'm going to put Adam Fox on the ice. But John Marino played against Top Comp in Pittsburgh. He was one of their only defensemen who played consistent minutes despite a lot of injuries. When Marino went out of the lineup, that's actually when they started struggling a little bit defensively. Top PK. I mean, I just don't think most people realize how valuable John Marino has been this year, other than maybe Dmitry Filipovich, who's basically his agent on Twitter. Yeah. But... uh, (laughs) If we could get into the McCarr-Hughes debate real quick, I have Hughes, I think, above McCarr because in my head I'm thinking, okay, these two are so close. Even strength, I think McCarr is the better offensive player. I think Hughes is the better defensive player. Power play, I think both of them are ridiculous for different reasons. I think McCarr is more of a threat with his ability to get into the slot and fire a shot, you know, use that quick little fake wrist shot and then go bar down off, off the crossbar. Quinn Hughes, I think, is just so good at opening up space for his teammates, drawing in that extra four-tracker, and then firing a pass to Pedersen on the top of the circle. It's so close. Again, you can't really go wrong with either. I'm going with Quinn Hughes above Kel McCarr, but if you, you could flip-flop those two pretty easily, and I'd be listening. Exactly. I think the two of them, it's so close. It really is going to be um, a pretty tight race, I would think, and... Um for all the reasons that you said, and we've we've had the Hughes McCarr debate, and realistically, those are two elite defensemen, and I think that having either of them as the Calder winner is probably the just thing. If anyone else wins but the two of them, I would be shocked. Um, Dmitry Filipovich is really pulling for his boy John Marino. Yeah, and I'm I, sorry, John buddy. Marino. It's not you're happen. totally right. Pittsburgh <laughs> did start to go downhill defensively when John Marino went out. He was a big piece, and one of the things that I actually really like about him is you don't really notice him when he plays. And if you don't notice a defenseman while they're playing defense, that's probably a good thing because it if means if they're a rookie playing on your top pair and you don't really notice them, that's pretty huge. Exactly. You that means they're not getting turned into a, a pylon on a shift basis and it's just you I would rather not notice you than notice you for good and bad reasons it's the Jake Gardner thing you notice him for really good reasons but then you also notice him when he's part of a game seven collapse and so it's one of those things where as a rookie on the top pair like you said I'd rather just not notice you at all and I think John Marino's done a really good job of that so he I think he picked five on the ballot but 
as far as my top three, I have just Kubalik ahead just because I think 30 goals in a rookie season is is really, really good. Uh, but John Marino would definitely probably be four on my ballot. And it's funny because for most of the year, I had Tristan Jari kind of in my top three mentally just because he was doing so well. I mean, there was a point where he was around a 930 save percentage. That's tailed off. He ended the, I mean, I guess the, let's say the season's over post-March, whenever it was, March 10th, March 11th. If we're to say the season's over as of then, Tristan Jari's played 33 games with a 921 save percentage. I don't know if that's enough to get you top three, but he, I, I got to think he gets in the top five there. Yeah, he probably gets some consideration, although goalies are weird that way. Like, to me, if you're going to put a goalie in the top five, it's probably going to be Mackenzie Blackwood. Because if you look at his numbers, and Lord, they get tweeted at me by New Jersey fans far too often for my liking but he's actually had a very good season so you got to give credit where it's due I think he's got a 915 save percentage and if you have a 915 playing behind whatever that defense is down there then that's a that's a commendable thing it really is and especially so, considering the first month was a tire fire um the whole season has been a tire fire let's not uh try and get away but I think Mackenzie Blackwood's really come into his own. He's going to be a very good goalie. And um, I think he probably got overshadowed because you have Shishirkin and Carter Hart also playing in the Metro. And they're both very young goalies, and Shishirkin especially. Um, he got some notoriety because he came in and basically slammed the door for the Rangers. And I like he'll stick, technically still count as a rookie next year. So I wouldn't be surprised if he... Uh, he wins the Calder next year, but uh, Blackwood definitely had uh, a good season considering what was in front of him. All right, where do you want to go next? We could go Selkie, Vesna, we could do Jack Adams. I say we go Vesna because like, this is the award that the GMs vote on, which I don't even know why that is, and Lord have mercy, do they get it wrong every single year. So if we're going to vote on this the way that it actually gets voted on, who who leads the league and wins? That That's how this award gets handed out, basically. I feel like, year. okay, so here's a fun fact. I feel like for the first time, the media or, like, the hockey nerds, the media, and the GMs might agree on who the Vesna winner should be, and it's Connor Hellebuck. Um, but I, also, I still don't think people realize just how bad Winnipeg has been this year with respect to... He should be in to, the conversation for the heart. Like when you when you look at the scoring chances that they're allowing compared to what they're generating every game, it's just it's insane how poorly they're being outshot, outchanced. Yet they're not being outscored on average, mainly because Connor Hellebuck's given them Vesna quality goaltending. I have him one, and a very distant second is my next player on the list. Like Connor Hellebuck. We're, we're going to talk about this. He should be getting heart consideration. That's how much he's carried this Winnipeg team. Yeah, and if you have a goalie that's getting heart consideration, they're probably the lock for the Vesna. So I would say, yeah, Connor Hellebuck, he's got, I think he's got the second most wins. He's got the second highest save percentage. He's got the second most actual physical time played behind Carey Price. Um, it's ridiculous what he's doing in Winnipeg. Like, it's not like he's playing behind Boston. He's Winnipeg gives up a ton of chances and they haven't been the best defensively this year. And you can probably thank losing three pretty good defensemen to that. Um, so I think, yeah, Connor Hellebuck. Who's Hellebuck's, the third? For, I can think of two. Who's the third that they lost? Um, so they lost Enstrom, Truba, and Bufflin. They lost Enstrom and two Myers, years ago. actually. <laughs> Enstrom wasn't back last year. Okay, so then. They lost, oh, it's the turnover. So they've lost, I want to say they've lost like five defensemen in the last two years. So they lost Myers, Truba, and Bufflin this year, which are all right-handed defensemen. There is a point where their top four is one of the best in hockey when they had Josh Morrissey, Jacob Truba, Tobias Enstrom, Dustin Bufflin. That oh, top yeah. four was solid. Now it's Josh Morrissey and And guys. <laughs> Tucker Poolman. Yeah. So I think Connor Hellebuck is probably the Vesna winner. And then behind him, I have another Canadian goaltender, Jacob Markstrom. Um, And what he's done, and I think had he not been hurt, he could have given Hellebuck a run for his money. Because what he was doing in Vancouver, I have him in our nerd hockey pool. And he was consistently putting up insane numbers. And so I think... Had he not gotten injured, 
he probably gives Hellebuck a run for his money. So that's my guy in second place. Just looking at Jacob Markstrom's career path, is it's always interesting. You look at those early years in Florida where you thought he was going to be great and it didn't work out. Then he came to Vancouver and right away it looked bad the first year or two. Oh, he yeah, was up was and down in the good. AHL. And he's slowly rounded out into a very capable starting goalie to the point where Vancouver thought that Thatcher Demko was going to kind of be the guy who would take over over, over this last year or two. And Markstrom's just basically since about January of last season, he's been arguably the best goalie in the NHL, if not a top three goalie in the NHL. Staying healthy remains an issue with him. And I know after the injury, that's kind of where I start to think, has he played enough games to truly get Vesna consideration? Because Connor Hellebuck, I think, played 58 games and Markstrom's only played 43. But there were 43 dominant starts, or at least most of them were dominant to the point where Carey Price putting up 55 plus starts of meh goaltending. I'd much rather have 43 starts of an elite goaltender. Well, and that's, and that's what Markstrom get, was this year. That's where you get with the third goalie I have, and I think you and I have the same guy in Tuka Rask. He played he played 40 games, which is three less than Markstrom. Highest save percentage in the NHL, I believe, like top five in wins now he does play for boston um i was gonna say can we stop talking about wins like it's a stat that indicates how good the goaltender is that's one of those things where you need to look at how many chances does boston give up not a whole lot how many like how good is the team they're very good so you can't just say oh player x is should win the vesna because of wins which is how the gms vote on it silliness um but Tuka Rask has actually been very good. If you've watched Boston play, there's a lot of games that they maybe had no business winning and somehow managed to win because Tuka Rask had a few 45 save performances. And then he's just been steady. He hasn't really had that fall off or that lapse that you'd expect in the season. Now he's got a pretty good goalie partner, so I, that helps. Um, but that's the hardest part for me in terms of can we make this guy a Vesna candidate? If his backup's doing almost as good as him. Right. I think it's, and I think he's a distant third, regardless of whether he has the highest save percentage in the NHL. You look at what Hellebuck's doing with Winnipeg and just his sheer workload. Like, I think he's got the most saves this year. That's a lot. It reminds me a lot of that one year in Edmonton where, oh, I'm drawing a blank. He went to Calgary afterwards. He just had a monster and completely fell off. Cam Talbot had like a career year, played 73 starts or something insane. That's what this season for Markstrom kind of reminds me of. With Halak and Rask, it's interesting because Boston, as we all know, they're an elite defensive team. But even after you account... Yeah, you look at the power play, you look at the penalty kill. They're a fantastic team, first in the NHL in standings. Uh, But... Even after you account for the backdoor passes and the two-on-ones and all the things that Boston is doing a good job of preventing, Tukarask is still first in the NHL at outperforming those expectations when you look behind the curtain at a, at a site like ClearSight Analytics that is able to account for these things. Fun fact, Yaroslav Halak is number five in the NHL when it comes to outperforming expectations. So maybe there are some funky team effects in there that just makes uh, Boston goaltenders look good because of the defense that's playing in front of them. But I still think there's a good case to have Tuka Rask in the top three. Frankly, I think it's Connor Hellebuck one, Jacob Markstrom's a distant second, and then I can't even think of who I would have third. You can make an argument for Rask. You can make an argument ben Bishop, for a bunch of maybe. goalies in that spot. Ben Bishop, and again with Ben Bishop, his backups arguably playing better than him. Exactly. So, like it's, you, so you're, there's going to come a point where if you're a starting goalie that plays 55 to 60 games, you'll be in Vesna conversation because there's just not going to be that many anymore because there's going to be so many tandems. Like when you think about it, I would say Shestorkin and. New York probably gets a lion's share of the starts next year. Carter Hart, the same in Philadelphia. Blackwood, definitely in New Jersey. Frederick Anderson in Toronto. Carey Price in Montreal. But there, there's going to be a lot of teams that try and go closer to 60-40 or 55-45 for their goaltending um, starts. And I think that's a wise I feel like the magic number is closer to 55 these days. 55%? I was going to say 55 starts at the end of an 82-game season. 
Yeah, I would say mm, the numbers would tell you closer to 51 would be better. Um, In terms of like some of the biometric data when it comes to peak performance? Yeah, you start getting into some um, overload and uh, more higher propensity for injury once you hit um, that you once you start to get closer to the 60 percent of the games um and then once you get over 70 percent of the games it, it it just starts going exponential how much does age and injury history play a factor there uh, a rather large one like if you have a hip injury That's what I imagine. so i'm thinking for some of these guys perfect in example their, a Corey schneider i'm thinking if you're in your mid to late 20s as a goaltender i'm thinking that you probably don't need as much rest as say a 33 year old with a history of groin injuries yeah if you have groin, hip, um, anything like that, it your age curve and the descent that you will have is likely to be a lot sharper than someone who's remained healthy for the majority of their career. Um, now, having said that, you could get a single concussion and just be screwed. So it, it really is difficult to predict, but as far as muscle injuries go, anything hip, groin area... Um, very difficult to stave off that age curve. All right, so that was the Vesna candidates. Let's go Selkie now. Let's talk about some defensive forwards. Now, what the award is listed as, <laughs> as the best defensive forward in hockey, what it's actually rewarded as is basically who's the best 200-foot forward no, it's in the hockey. Best that, that tends defensive, to be... It's the best penalty killer who scores goals. That's what it is. It's the it's the it's a guy with a high faceoff percentage who has seventy points and <laughs> yes because you know who should win this year who are you gonna say Anthony Sorelli I have him number one yeah Anthony Sorelli should win that guy's defensive numbers even in his first year were really high for a rookie and then I remember just gandering at them while I was in New Jersey and being like oh my god like elite defensively and now he's taking on a bit more of a, a, a even a bigger role when it comes to the top players that he's going against because I think in his first year you had JT Miller playing in your top six you felt a bit more comfortable putting a Kucherov or a Stamkos out there against the other team's top lines now they're trusting Anthony Sorelli with a lot of it so that they can get some of their star forwards some favorable matchups and he's continuing to excel in that role I love Anthony Sorelli he's just a little pit bull he goes and he wins every puck battle He's kind of that guy that just every coach would love. You want to have that guy on your team. He's the first player I'd want over the boards late in a game when we're protecting a lead, penalty kill against the other team's top forward. For me, he's that guy right now, and, and that's he's playing who deserves with Blake the Blake Coleman now, who is arguably another top defensive forward in the NHL. They're playing on the same line. So basically, when Tampa has their checking line out there, the odds of you scoring are razor thin. So you better hope that your secondary... And, well, your second line and your secondary scoring can chip in because Anthony Sorelli and Blake Coleman are are great equalizers. I wanted to talk myself into putting Blake Coleman in my top three, and I couldn't Mm, get there. He's not quite there. But top five, top ten, I think there's a very good argument. Yeah, Absolutely. The hard part with Coleman for me is the minutes, honestly. I just, like, is he a guy that's been out there for the same shifts that Ryan O'Reilly and Sean Couturier are facing? And that's the tough part for me. Well, Philip Deneau has actually been very good in Montreal this year as well. He was great last year, too. That line with Deneau, Tatar, and Gallagher, one of the best-kept secrets in the league. They've been phenomenal the last two years at 5-5. Five and five. And I was talking to Allison Lucan, and you know who's actually had a surprisingly good— well. He's gotten better defensively as his offense has tailed off in Columbus. Nick Foligno. I don't know if I'd have him necessarily on the ballot. My ballot's probably Sorelli, O'Reilly, and one of Deno or Couturier, which leaves Mark Stone and Patrice Bergeron not in the top three, which you would never think. I mean, Patrice Bergeron winning it in a year where he doesn't deserve to win it, that would be crazy. That would be nuts. That would never happen. For what it's worth, I think he's the best defensive forward of our generation. I just think he kind of got a... I think Pavel Datsuk maybe has something to say about that. Well, I almost consider them from two different generations. You know what I mean? But I guess there there was a lot of overlap there. Yeah. I mean, Patrice Bergeron is... If you were to pick one one guy to win you a game and you couldn't pick 
the Crosby McDavid tandem, I might take prime Patrice Bergeron just because he can do anything and everything. I'd make the argument that Bergeron's better defensively and Datsuk was a better 200 foot player. If that's just because of the skill and what he could do with the puck. There's a reason that in 2010, I want to say when Canada was leading and they needed to win a face-off. Mike Babcock put Patrice Bergeron out there and not any one of the litany of superstars he had at his disposal. Well, I mean, Bergeron's been, of the star players, I think he's been the best face-off guy for a while now, but I think there's a bit of a changing of the gardener. Who've been the top face-off guys in the NHL? Among players who are, let's say, facing top competition, taking a lot of these face-offs. That I'm not sure of. So here's the hard part, is that if you just sort by face-off percentage, you'll see Sean Couturier number one. But if you scroll down, you'll see Claude Giroux number four. They're splitting strong side draws. I, I think this is the hard part. When, when players are splitting draws, left-handed player right. takes it on his strong side, right-handed player takes it on his strong side. It's going to inflate your percentage a bit. Whereas Patrice Bergeron and Ryan O'Reilly are just taking them all the time. Yeah, Ryan O'Reilly, I think, leads the league in face-off attempts. And he's taken strong side, he's taken them on his weak side, he's taken them at times where, you know, it's not ideal to be taking that face off, but hey, we need to throw our best guy out there. So, of the top players in the league right now, you're looking at O'Reilly, you're looking at Bergeron, Taves are still there, Claude Giroux has always been amazing at face-offs. I didn't realize that JT Miller on his strong side was really good at face-offs, but it's one of those secret skills that sometimes you don't realize how good a guy is at it until you let him take a few. Yeah, I mean, I still don't think your face-off percentage determines whether you're in Selkie conversation. It drives me nuts because so many people make it a big thing where, oh, you need to be a center, you need to be winning all these face-offs to be getting Selkie consideration. Whereas Mark Stone last season, there was a very good case that he was the best defensive forward in hockey. A very good case. Yeah. This season, I don't think he's been as good defensively. I think he's been very good offensively. I, I don't have him quite in that conversation, but... I mean, Ryan O'Reilly, Sean Couturier, Patrice Bergeron, I mean, these are just the the same names we've been hearing over the last couple years. I feel like once you establish yourself as a very strong defensive player, that reputation lasts for a while. For a couple of these players, very deservedly so. I think O'Reilly and Couturier had excellent seasons. I think Bergeron, even though he's one of my favorite players of the last decade, I think he's the third best player on his line now, which seems crazy to say. He is okay, so I would say he's the third best player on his line. He is still the best defensive player on his line. We're not going to go fair. around making arguments that David Pasternak is a defensive wizard now, but I would say that he carries Pasternak carries the offensive load. Marchand is that 200 foot player who also does really idiotic things, and Patrice Bergeron is probably the most reliable player in how long in Boston? Like forever. I was going to say that Bobby Orr guy was pretty good, even though he exactly. never won a and cup with Don Cherry. Exactly, and neither one of us were alive when he was playing. Fun fact, Don Cherry never won a cup despite playing in a six-team league with Bobby Orr. Fun <laughs> fact. So I would say, yeah, we've got, who do you have? So I have Sorelli, and then... I had Sorelli one, O'Reilly two, Couturier yep. three. Okay, so I'm a toss-up between Denot and Couturier, but I have O'Reilly two as well. I had Deneau on my shortlist. I also had Jean-Gabriel uh, Pajot on my shortlist. Yeah, he had of, quite the defensive season. Of players who just played the toughest minutes. In Ottawa, minutes. no less. Yeah, Pajot was playing with weak line mates, going up against top competition, and doing a pretty good job. So, for my money, that's top five, top ten Selkie consideration in my books. Like, we don't, we don't profess to use plus minus, but it says something when your team has a goal differential of like minus 60 and you're somehow a plus two. Like there you can't ignore it because that is so blatant that you have to evaluate that. That is an evaluative stat because it's just so ridiculous. That's not an accident that your team is minus 60. I'd prefer we just looked at even strength goal differential instead of weirdly counting some pluses and not counting other pluses (laughs) and counting some minuses and not counting other minuses. I I just wish we'd be like, no, a goal went in when you're on the ice at even strength. Let's just do it that way. But that's, that's a whole nother conversation of why I hate plus Yeah. The Pajot thing is like, oh, well he played on a bad team. Yeah. And he was the only guy that didn't get scored on all the time. 
He was excellent defensively in Ottawa. He's a big part of the reason they were competitive this year. Yeah. Okay, so now we get to talk about the Norris, because you and I both have a problem with how this thing gets voted on. Yeah, it it tends to just go to a defenseman who is either number one or number two in the league in points, you know, high in ice time, high in plus minus. And it's like, yeah, I get that. But to me, I'm wondering, okay, who's the best defenseman in the NHL this season? Who is the best defenseman at... If I want a guy in a do-or-die playoff game this season, based on how he performed, 25-plus minutes, 30 minutes maybe in a a do-or-die playoff game, who am I going with? Am I going with John Carlson because he had a lot of points in Washington? I'm not. He's nowhere near my top five. I'm not even sure if he's in my top ten. I think he's a great power play quarterback, but on a power play with Ovechkin and Backstrom and Kuznetsov, he's like the fourth most valuable player on that power play. So Carolina has two defensemen that I would take over John Carlson, potentially three. If Dougie Hamilton stayed healthy, he would have been my pick this year for the Norris, but he didn't stay healthy. And now I have a tough time. This is one of the tougher Norris years for me because there's not a player who stands out. The player that I think most people will probably be able to agree on, I think is Roman Yossi. Agreed. He, what a season he's had. 26 minutes a night. <laughs> and I think he's done it in all respects because you look at the point production, it's there. Uh, personally, I think a lot of his points are overrated because he picks up a lot of them on a power play that is bottom right. five in the NHL. And I mean, if, if your job is to quarterback a power play and the power play is not good, I'm not sure if we should be considering your points as you know a big positive. Right. Because it's all the other stuff he does. It's everything he does at even strength. It's the fact that that team's blue line, without P.K. Subban now, who fell off a bit of a cliff after the injury, uh, Dante Fabro wasn't ready for the big minutes that they were trying to give him. So Nashville's top four defense this year isn't what you are used to it being. Uh, Roman Yossi had to carry a lot of it. End-to-end, him skating the puck up the ice, doing great things with it. We're used to seeing that from Roman Yossi. But I just think that he took it to another level this year. I didn't have him number one on my ballot, but I'd imagine that he's top three in a lot of ballots, top two in a lot of ballots. and It's hard to ignore the season that he's had. I wouldn't have a problem with him winning the Norris Award like I have with some other Norris winners in previous years. So. You mean you didn't agree with Drew Doughty winning? To, to be fair, I thought Drew Doughty was the number two defenseman that year. I just thought Carlson was number one by a mile, and it was right. kind of a lifetime, lifetime achievement award at, what, age 25 for Doughty? Yeah. Okay, so yeah, I have Yossi, and then um, I I totally agree. Had Hamilton stayed healthy, he would have been the guy for me. Um, I also have Jacob Slavin on my ballot, just because he is always very good. Um, every single time I watch Carolina, he is their best defenseman. And it's on the power play, it's on the penalty kill, it's even strength, it's gap control. It it's is... not on the power play, I'll tell you that. Well, after <laughs> Hamilton... Uh, went down, he started playing on the second PP unit. That's fair. That's fair. I mean, right? second and, PP, though, isn't like a big deal, really. And we just talked about how it didn't really matter for Yossi. Right? And yeah, that's, that's the big thing for me, is we look at these points, and then a player is picking up points on a power pull unit that isn't even that good that he's supposed to be running. Yeah, that's how not, much do you have to that's weight more of that an indictment into it? than anything. Yeah, that, that's, that to me is a big question mark on Yossi. That's what I have the biggest problem with when we're talking about Roman Yossi as this, you know, elite Norris season. The power play wasn't good. And isn't he supposed to be a major factor in there? Okay, so with Slavin, I think it's more his five on five. Like, he is consistently playing against top competition, uh, all the hard matchups, all the defensive zone starts, always on the penalty kill. Um, his stick is always in the right position like I have seen him intercept more passes than I think almost anybody else um he positions his body I find he does he does something on the rush that I think really helps and that is he guides the player to where he wants him to go and that's generally a vulnerable position and then he attacks as soon as that player is in that vulnerable position and that's what makes for his zone defense being so good is that players just don't have the time and space they're because they get manipulated by him and and that's a skill that I think is lacking and when you have it you can be elite so for for me he's there um right up there with Roman Yossi yeah Alex Petrangelo is another name that came to mind for me 
in that I thought he had a, a really good year. Which is weird because St. Louis had a not great year overall as a team. I thought they were solid, but coming off of a Stanley Cup, you figure, oh man, this team's going to light it up again next year. And they were a bit underwhelming this season overall, to me at least, when you look at the well, fact Jordan that they were Biddington getting... Well, Jordan Biddington didn't have like a 9.35, so... And they were playing Colton Pareko on his wrong side yeah, because they traded weird. for Justin Falk, who's another right-handed defenseman. That they didn't it... need... Yeah, maybe they're planning ahead for if Petrangelo walks in free agency. It's it's a very weird situation, but for a team that was a bit confusing for me this season, I thought Petrangelo was the one constant that was always doing the right things and shifting play in the right direction. And on the power play, he was good. At even strength, he was fantastic. And then he was in trade rumors, and I'm like, what do you, what? No, stop that. <laughs> I love the fact that you brought up Jacob Slavin because he's someone that I really wanted to talk about when we're talking about this award because he's someone who would never get considered for this award usually because, because he doesn't he has 30 have the points. He doesn't have the point totals. I mean, he has 36 points in 68 games, which by the way is a career high for him. Good for you, Jacob Slavin. But I don't care about points that much. Just if I'm looking at who's impacting the game, who Your had a better a season this year? I.e., do not get scored on. Like, Who had a better job? season this year, Tony D'Angelo or Jacob Slavin? Because Tony Slavin. D'Angelo had way more points, you know, more dynamic offensive production, but he gave up so much defensively, and there were so many, Oof. you know, bloopers and errors that resulted in goals against. Whereas with Jacob Slavin, you're not having any of that. Well, the, he is the telltale made- sign for for me is if you ask 31 NHL coaches, okay, it is either a tie game, it could be you're winning, you're losing. It is a later point in the game and you have a defensive zone faceoff. Which defenseman are you putting out? To play defense, you're putting out Jacob Slavin. At no point are you putting out Tony D'Angelo in the defensive zone. The counter argument is that, well, if you're elite offensively and the pros outweigh the cons, then I just want the guy who provides value. But with Jacob Slavin, I think sometimes he gets labeled as this like defensive defenseman, whereas he's a very good puck mover. He's very good. His breakout numbers are insane. And he does this all against the toughest competition in the league. He comes out on top, regardless of who he plays with. Now, he does get to play with some good partners, whether it's uh, a healthy Dougie Hamilton or Brett Pesci, who is another one of those underrated defensemen. But you know what? For fun, I'm going to put Jacob Slavin number one on my ballot because Go off. if I have one defenseman I want on the ice last 10 minutes of a tie game, I think Jacob Slavin this year is my bet for that. I thought Slavin and Hamilton were the two best defensemen in the NHL this year. That pairing was unbelievable. And when Hamilton went down, they didn't miss a beat in terms of their ability to tilt the ice in their team's favor. They weren't scoring as many goals. I mean, the power play wasn't as dynamic. But Jacob Slavin's ability to control a game at even strength and on the penalty kill, I think it's something that we don't talk about enough when we're looking at this award. And he's someone that I think we need to give a lot more appreciation to than we are on the mainstream media, on TV. This is a guy that rarely gets talked about, and we should be talking a lot more about him because he's one of the best players in the league. Alrighty. Um, the Lady Bing, which is basically the most gentlemanly player, so star or good player who plays a lot that doesn't take a lot of penalties and doesn't get suspended. Can we honestly skip this one? Because I don't think the players care about it either. Yeah, I mean, for me, like, I literally had Slavin, Wierenski, and Matthews because all of them had 10 penalty minutes or less, and they all play over 20 minutes a game. Um, I'd like and to see us give it to a defenseman for once. I feel like this award always goes to the, the forward, forward who scored yeah. 30 goals and had two penalty minutes. Or Ryan O'Reilly that year, he didn't take a penalty all year, but he when he had a broken stick off of a face-off and that yeah, was his one penalty he took all year. Okay, so let's talk about the heart because I feel like the Jack Adams is very difficult to get a handle on until we know what's happening with the regular season or not and who is and isn't making the playoffs and a litany of other things. I also I think we have to treat it as if, let's say the season's done as of right now, let's evaluate the first five months of the year. Okay, so who do you have? I have Mike Sullivan in a landslide. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I, I just think when you look at all the injuries in Pittsburgh, when Sidney Crosby was out of the lineup, when 
every other forward got injured, when defenseman X got injured, that team didn't miss a beat. They kept playing the same style that's resulted in them scoring a bunch of goals off of backdoor passes, passes from behind the net, just quick puck movement into open spaces. You can tell that these guys have played with Crosby because everyone kind of emulates his style of play. But I think to get an entire team to buy into that concept and to trust youngsters like a John Marino or to put players like Brian Rust in a position to succeed. Look at uh, Jared McCann this year having a career year. I just think you look at what Pittsburgh should have been coming into this year. I I tell you that Crosby's going to miss a third of their games. And when Crosby was off the ice last season, they were bad. Crosby, his on-off differential, if you look at shots or scoring chances, they were best in the league last year because they were amazing with him on the ice, and they were terrible when he was off the ice. So if I were to tell you, Sidney Crosby's going to miss a third of this season, how's Pittsburgh going to do? You're thinking, oof, I don't even think they make the playoffs. And for my money, they were the most well-rounded team all around. I mean, Boston, you can make a good argument for. They, they do have the goals and the wins. But I think if you look at the predictive numbers, Pittsburgh's ability to outshoot, outchance the opposition, even strength, despite all those injuries they were facing, I thought Mike Sullivan did a fantastic job. And I have him number one by very far. Yeah, I actually, I have Mike Sullivan and then I have Elaine Vigneault in Philadelphia. Um, Interesting. I don't think anyone kind of saw the success. There's set, like as of the recording of this podcast, if the playoffs started today, they would have home ice against Pittsburgh in the playoffs. They're second in the Metropolitan Division. I don't think anyone saw that. What has Elaine Vigneault done well in Philadelphia? Because I got to be honest, when he was hired there, I thought, oh boy, here we go. Another retread, another coach who's just getting hired because he's a name. I didn't think it was going to be a good fit. And they figured it out this year. Yeah, so he's completely altered how they forecheck. Um, they also, he puts a lot of trust in the defense to really get, like, get back, move the puck quickly. There's not a whole lot of D-to-D screw around with it. It's very much north-south hockey, and then you do what you want in the, the uh, offensive zone. But they've been much more um, structured on their breakouts, structured in their defensive zone coverage. Um, they've gotten good goaltending, but realistically it's it's been league average like i think carter hart's a 910 and that like that's not tukarask number um but i think he's the clear what's clear to me is he's gotten the buy in from the bigger players to start playing the way that they can play and he's gotten the potential like he's he's hitting the potential out of the park with these players and that's what a good coach does is figure out how to maximize every single player's potential and so for me um, Mike Sullivan is very much a a landslide first, but then I've got Elaine Vigneault just because he's totally changed how Philadelphia is playing, and it's clearly working. I think it helps that Carter Hart's given them some actual saves as opposed to Brian Elliott and his 899 save percentage. I think when you have a, show me a good goalie and I'll show you a good coach, you know, show me a a bad goalie and I'll show you a bad coach. I feel like that this, this is a big part of it. And you could say the same thing about Mike Sullivan. If Tristan Jari doesn't have the great season that he's having, we're probably not talking about Mike Sullivan as a, as a Jack Adams, you know, shoe in. So a lot of this does come down to goaltending. And I think another great example here is the guy that I had number two on my ballot. John Tortorella, again, Columbus, after Panarin left, and then you had a Seth Jones injury this year, their goaltenders, most people can't pronounce their names. This entire team shouldn't have been as good as they were, and yet you look at the way that they were controlling quality chances. If you look at a place, ClearSight Analytics is kind of my favorite behind-the-curtain website to look at some uh, some closer numbers. And when you look at the quality chances that that team was generating versus what they were giving up, they were outplaying teams with most of the time inferior roster talent. That, to me, speaks to coaching. I thought he did a phenomenal job with that team this year. Yeah, I think no one really expected with the departure of Panarin and Bobrovsky that they would be anywhere close to a playoff spot, even Duchesne, actually. Um, and so, like, kudos to Torts as well. Um, I just, I think Mike Sullivan wins in a landslide. I think he has to. I don't think it's going to be close. I mean, I, you could make a good case for someone like Rod Brindamore getting in there, Bruce Cassidy. Even I mean, uh, Jeff Ward in Calgary after the debacle of what happened in November, he got that ship righted quick, and as of today, they're in a, a playoff spot, and I don't think a lot of people saw that happening based on how their season started. All right, let's move on to 
the last one, the one everyone cares about, the heart trophy. Okay, name your heart winner in three, two, one. Artemi Panarin. Yep. (laughs) So this seems to be the sexy pick among nerds on Twitter and the interwebs. I've noticed it, and I have this opinion too. Why do so many nerds like us have Panarin over some of the other candidates you're hearing about? Um, because, okay, so you want to talk about physically dragging your team? I think his next closest compadre is Mika Zabanajad, who has had a great season. But you look at the other players, and you have, everyone's talking about Pasternak. Well, he also plays on a line with Bergeron and uh, Martian. So he has some help, to say the least. Then you look at people on Dreisaitl or McDavid, they can't even pick. And I'm like, well, that tells you all you need to know about that situation. Um, if you can't even pick who the best player is on the team... By the way, if you're having trouble picking between Drysaddle and McDavid... It's uh, McDavid. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Um, There are so many people who have Drysaddle as the Hart Trophy winner this year, and I'll get into my rant after, but... Yeah, you'll get into your rant, but I will say this. I am through and through a German, and I will always pull for the German over almost anyone else. Leon Dreisaitl is not better nor more valuable than Connor McDavid, and it is really, like, you don't galaxy brain it, stop overthinking it. So I think for me, when we talk about the heart, what Panarin's done with virtually nothing with the Rangers versus what Pasternak and Dreisaitl have done with things uh, on their respective teams, you could make an argument um, for... Connor Hellebuck, again, you could make an argument for Austin Matthews and Nathan McKinnon. Um, and I, to me, it, it's probably Panarin Hellebuck because they're kind of doing the whole I'm going to drag my team, even if we don't make the playoffs, to a spot that we had no business being in by myself. Yeah, I had <laughs> Panarin 1, I had Nathan McKinnon 2, and Connor Hellebuck 3. Panarin and McKinnon, I think it's a similar case. You're just looking at a team that, in New York's case, it's kind of a, a talent disparity between Panarin and the other players on that team. Panarin with and McKinnon, everyone else. McKinnon, it was a bunch of injuries. And he had to be the stabilizing force throughout some of those injuries to keep the team going. Both players phenomenal at even strength, outchancing, outshooting the opposition, outscoring the opposition. That's an important factor because it's something that McDavid and Drysaddle cannot say. Those guys got outchanced at even strength. I'm sorry, that's a problem. So Artemi Panarin had has 95 points in 69 games, and his next closest teammate, Miga Zibanejad, who has 41 goals, has 75 points. That is 20 points less. Zibanejad has 41 goals. Yeah, he has 41 goals. Oh my goals. god! So they- really happy for him. Remember when he was traded for Derek Broussard, who was way oh older God, than him? Yeah, that was, it was not made good. no sense. That was just Eugene Melnick not wanting to pay his player. Now, let's be fair. Mika Zibanejad had a five-goal game, and that contributes to 41 goals in a season. Um, but Panarin having 20 points more than his next closest teammate is um, pretty spectacular. Like, it's, it just is what it is. Um and we can all agree that we did not no one had the rangers being any good this year or even close to where they are right now and like panarin in an 82 game season is probably he probably gets 110 or 112 points okay i want to talk about leon drysaddle so he led the league in points so therefore he should be number 1 on your heart ballot right that's how we do no. it every year and this drives me nuts because that's what the arts is for and nerds like you and me, we get a bad name for, oh, you can't, you can't just use the numbers, you know, you gotta, you gotta <laughs> use the eye You're test. using one number, you're using points. If all we do is rank people by points and just say, oh yeah, those are the best players in the league in that order, then I think that we've lost a lot of nuance in our hockey analysis. And here's the thing, I watch Leon Dreisaitl a lot because when him and McDavid are on the ice, it's a lot of fun. I love oh, watching so that fun. team. They're so much fun. But the reason it's fun is because A, McDavid is a video game, but B, 
they're generating a lot offensively and giving up a lot defensively. It's kind of fire wagon hockey when those two are on the ice. And for what it's worth, I understand why when you're that talented with your playmaking and what you can create off the rush, you're going to try to take more chances. But Drysaddle isn't getting back defensively on those three on twos, and he's given up a lot off the rush as well. Not penalty killing either. There's just a lot missing for me that even though he led the league in points, he was a defensive train wreck. He wasn't trusted to, you know, like you say, handle penalty kill situations. Even though we could talk about the fact that they had the best power play in the league, how much of that is Drysaddle? How much of that is McDavid? I would make the argument that it's more McDavid than it is Drysaddle, even though Drysaddle had that amazing game when McDavid was hurt. And I think that that... If you're making the case for Drysaddle as MVP, you're probably going to point to that game as your biggest moment of the season to say, look, even when McDavid wasn't there, this guy's carrying the offense, he's carrying the power play, he's taken this team of fourth-line wingers to a potential playoff spot. And I understand that argument. I just don't think it's as valuable as what Panarin does in a 200-foot sense, what Nathan McKinnon does in a 200-foot sense, while also quarterbacking a top-five power play in the league. I think if you're looking at the goals you create offensively and the goals you prevent by having the puck and playing solid 200-foot possession-style hockey, I think that's where Panarin and McKinnon have Dreisaitl beat, and that's why I don't have Dreisaitl in my top three. Yeah, like I think, listen, is Leon Dreisaitl... I said this on Dmitry Filipovich's podcast last summer, and he raked me over the coals for it. He's probably a top five player in the league. And Whoa. you'd absolutely want him on your team on any given night. However... Top, top five offensive player in the league? Yes. Top, like, okay. top five guy that's going to score you goals. Put the puck in the net, make great passes. Exactly. I think his passing is probably his best attribute, honestly. So, okay, now you're GM, and you go, you can pick... One player under the age of 25 to build your team with. If you pick Leon Dreisaitl, I am firing you immediately. If you pick anybody other than Connor McDavid, I'm firing you immediately. Edmonton does this weird thing where they try to attribute the success of the team to anyone other than McDavid. Which is hilarious. Like, what are you doing? We've seen it with Chris Russell. We've seen it with Milan Lucic. We've seen it with... So many narratives throughout this city, and you know exactly which writers are putting those out on Twitter and, and mm. writing you know, fan, fantastic articles about them. You can already picture <laughs> the tweets. But yeah. I'm sorry, can we just admit that Connor McDavid's the best player in hockey? If you watch him play, it's, it's, it's not that close. 200-foot defensive lapses in his game, like certain things we'd like him to work on, yeah. But he also played the entire year with Zach Cassian. I think that that speaks more or to a roster-building issue. Cheech. Yeah, put an actual good defensive, you know, put a Blake Coleman or JT Miller in that spot. Could you imagine if he was playing with, like, Anthony Sorelli? Now, here's the case. If you're an, if I'm an Edmonton fan, I'm going, wait, Drysaddle's playing with Zach Cassian. Shouldn't that factor in when you're talking about how poorly he played defensively and how much he gave up? I think that's part of it. But I also think that the best players in the world like an Artemi Panarin, regardless of who you're playing with, you find a way to drag them to positive results. And even though the goals were good in Edmonton, the shots and scoring chances, they were getting outplayed when Drysaddle was on the ice. That's a problem to me. Here's the thing. Panarin, no matter what, every single night, the whole night, he is getting the top defensive pairing and the top checking center on the team because there's nobody else to take that from him. Right? It's It's... Panarin, in the same way that two years ago in New Jersey, it was Taylor Hall, Nico Heischer, and a bunch of guys, right? And it was Nathan McKinnon, too. I mean, he had Rantanen. But in Edmonton and in Boston, specifically in Edmonton, let's zero in on that for a second. There is no scenario where a coach that is worth anything is going to say, ah, yes, I am going to put my second best defensive pairing on against McDavid because Leon Dreisaitl is playing. That is never going to happen. So this is what happens. It's called a filter down effect. And it's why Dreisaitl gets as many points as he does is because when he doesn't play with McDavid, the coaches are forced to use their best defensemen and matchups against McDavid because he's freaking McDavid. And then Leon Dreisaitl gets the second pairing defenseman, and the not-as-good checking center, or maybe he goes head-to-head with a star, and more often than not, 
he will have success. And guess what? If you're a top five, even top 10 player in the league, you should be having that success because God forbid Connor McDavid got those matched up. He would have 140 points. Like he really would. So for me, that's what I think a lot of people get lost in is, oh, Drysdale has all these points. Well, yeah, because he has all these secondary matchups and a ton of power play points. He better have that many points if he's as good of a hockey player as you say he is. Is he better than Austin Matthews is what people really want to know. Based on (laughs) numbers, no. But I think you could make the argument that, yes, he probably is. I mean, Defensively, he's not. That's not up for debate. And as scoring, he's not. But I think he's a better passer and he's better in transition than Matthews is. I think defensively, they've both been pretty trash throughout their careers, if we're being honest. Yes, but, but I think we saw Matthews take steps this year, and there were multiple times where I watched Dreisaitl play where I was like, oh, I don't even think he knows he needs to be there. Right? Whereas you noted in your report cards that Matthews made strides this year, and he's still not in the same conversation as a McKinnon or a Panarin. It, it, like, it's just not, it's not the same conversation. But I do have Matthews in that, you know, top five, top ten conversation. Absolutely. I'm not sure if I have him in the top three range, but when you look at what he's done for that Toronto power play, he's the main trigger man on that power play. You look at what he's done at even strength, being the most consistent player on Toronto all year. The fact that he was going to break the 50 goal barrier, maybe get to 60. I mean, you can make this argument with him. You can make this argument for Pasternak. Pasternak is honestly the tougher one to gauge for me because he's having such a phenomenal year. But how much of that is strictly Pasternak versus the fact that he gets to play with Bergeron Marchand? I think that has to factor in at some point. I think it has to factor in because, okay, this is what I... When I look at things, I go, okay, if I were to take that player out, so example, if I were to take David Pasternak out and put Connor McDavid in, what would that line look like? If I were to take David Pasternak out and put Austin Matthews or Nathan McKinnon in, what would that line look like? Would it be better? Potentially. I think sometimes there's a fit and there's certain skill sets that mesh differently. Yeah, if I were to put David Pasternak in the position that Leon Dreisaitl or Austin Matthews is in, where he doesn't have Patrice Bergeron and Brad Marchand, is he as dominant as those guys currently are? I would say probably not. It is way harder to dominate from the wing. Um, And I also don't think that he is nearly as well-rounded defensively because he doesn't have to be. He plays on the wing. I mean, you're arguing for a winger to win the MVP in Artemi Panarin. Yes, but then he... When we talk about value to team, because this is how nonsense that that's the whole other issue I have with the heart. Um, and Panarin does take faceoffs. He actually like you will come back, you will see him low in his zone, you will see him F one on the back check more than once. Um, it's the way he carries things. the puck end to end. He basically is a center. He just yeah. starts on the wing, and then hockey. I feel like the the there's no left wing the center right zone. wing. Yeah, we're becoming more of a positionless sport where the three forwards have to interchange roles. You know, F1, F2, F3 on the forecheck. Oh, crap. F3 on the back check. F1, F2. There's really not positions. swinging low on the breakouts, carrying it end to end. He is driving the bus in transition on offense, on the power play. Every time he's on the ice, he's the guy. Forget about positions. It's me and you two. And when you have the kind of results that he did on a team that... I think New York Rangers fans are, and, and a lot of people who follow that team are of the opinion that that team is actually better than, than it is because they get outshot and outchanced pretty brutally. And without Panarin, I don't think that team's very good, but they're fun and they have a lot of interesting young talent. And I'm happy that Panarin was able to drag them to what would have been a playoff spot if we had sports, but we don't have sports. So we get to yell about Leon Saddle on a random afternoon in April. It's great. All right. So we're at an hour and we need to wrap this quickly i would say top three are panarin hellebuck and mm, mckinnon who are your top three yeah i'm I'm very different i went panarin mckinnon hellebuck in that order yeah we just ah okay such such divisive opinions on this show no kovalev shift today um but we are going to do our top three um kovalev shift will be back next week it's just one of those things um man that's such a kovalev move to take a kovalev shift off yeah we're taking a game off all right load management baby so it was easter slash passover this past weekend 
foods you look forward to getting on holidays. So like stuff that you don't normally, that you're not going to get like during the year on a Tuesday night. Number one, mini eggs. Easy. Chocolate in general, like the special chocolate. Because like there's Christmas chocolate that I don't get unless it's Christmas kind of thing. Mini eggs Yeah, we used to get, when I was younger, we had these big chocolate Easter bunnies that we'd get. Oh, yeah. The Carnaby ones or whatever they're called. Those were awesome. Those were really good. Okay, so. And I'm going to keep it Easter themed. I'm going to go with the caramel, like, egg. You know, the big, like. Oh, like the cream cream egg caramel kind of thing? Yeah. Oh, those are so good. So, yeah, I'm going to keep mine Easter themed. Go mini eggs, big chocolate rabbit, and then the caramel milk egg. All right. Yeah, I'll keep mine Easter themed, too. I will go, um, actually, I get this at Christmas, too, and I never get it any other time. My dad makes these, like, maple pecan glazed sweet potatoes, and they're, like, oh, they're just a gift from God. They're so good. Um, So those, but then other than that, at Easter, um, being the German that I am, we get, like, special chocolate that we don't get at any other point during the year. So just, like, the general Easter German chocolate. And then, surprise, surprise, the McDonald's Cream Egg McFlurry that only comes out at Easter. I had about six of those this time around. It usually is more than double that. So I showed some self-restraint, but those are my three. I was going to say, it's an essential service right there. I mean, I haven't had McDonald's <laughs> in like two weeks. I'm proud of you. I, I, I'm proud of me. Okay, top three. This is controversial, but now it's legal in Ontario where we live. Impaired foods. So when you're drunk or high, what are your go-to top three foods? Whew, that's a really good question. Uh, well, Burrito Boys, Ooh. I don't need to be drunk or high. I could be sober and I'd love Burrito Boys. <laughs> yeah. But, but it's, when, you, when you're impaired, it's just as good. They're not open right now, and this is what's affected me most in the entire quarantine. It's like, oh, is it the social distancing? Is it being away from your girlfriend? Is it X, Y, Z? It's the fact no. that Burrito Boys... If is- McDonald's closes, let me tell you, I will probably just be reduced to a pile of bone because i will not know what to do with myself i need to start a petition burrito boys should be an essential service i well, i've food. been going through withdrawal the last month yeah they, they have none of their stores are open okay so you have burrito boys what, what are the other two uh thinking late night it's like 2 a.m uh this is it's not a specific choice but any like chinese food place Late at night, if you can find one that's open. Okay, as someone who's part Chinese, I'm offended that you said nothing specific. Is it real Chinese food, or is it, like, the shit you find at the side of the road? Well, I don't know. What were you thinking? Like, do you eat at the Mandarin? No. Okay, good. All right, fine. Oh, please. I'm from, I'm from like, a a very culturally diverse uh, area. We got a a bunch of different restaurants. I will only eat at a Chinese place if I physically walk in and the menu is written in Chinese character and, B, I have to order in Cantonese. Otherwise, I don't eat there. Oh, wow. That's my barometer. So, basically, I'm reduced to, like, Markham and Chinatown. (laughs) Markham has some good stuff. Oh, yeah. I got my spot in Markham where they know my grandmother by name. And you know what? McDonald's for late night, you know, oh, it's so good. It yeah. is. It's so bad, but it's so good. So you have Burrito Boys, McDonald's, and Chinese food. I like it. Those are my kind of like out on a Friday night, Saturday night crap. It's late. I got to get some kind of food. I'm starving. What, what am I going for? That's what I'm I will feeling. say, Kel again. I don't need to be drunk for this, but McDonald's. <laughs> that was me and Burrito Boys. Yeah, I I mean, it's not exactly a secret at this point. McDonald's is chief among that. I actually, um, there was one night I was out drinking with one of my best friends, and there's a McDonald's at Young and, uh, almost Young and, it's like Young and Gerard. And I was so excited for chicken nuggets that I stepped out onto Young Street into traffic, and he had to pull me off the road to prevent me from getting hit by a car because I was that excited for chicken nuggets. So that's where my McDonald's love stands while I'm drunk. Gotta look both ways, Rachel. Come on. This is this is why you're losing your steering wheel. You gotta keep your eye <laughs> on the ball here. So McDonald's is, is first chief among that. Um, ooh, what else do I like? Uh, like chips, specifically ketchup chips. Um, just like general chips candy kind of thing. But then the other thing that I adore when drunk is um if i'm in canada it's poutine 
Oh, yeah, that's a good choice. If I'm in Hoboken, New Jersey, it is empanadas. Yo, empanadas are sick. Oh, my God. Okay, so there is, when I lived in Hoboken, um, my best friend Paige, we were out drinking one night, and it, I think it was like 2.30 in the morning, and I was starving, and I didn't want to walk to McDonald's because I was that lazy. She goes, come to the empanada cafe. I'd never had one in my life. She showed me it. I went there twice a week for the rest of the time I was in New Jersey. It was, they were unbelievable. And let me tell you something, at three o'clock in the morning when you finally get them made fresh, oh, those things are nectar of the gods. So it depends. If I'm in Canada, it's poutine. If I'm in Hoboken, empanadas. When I was in LA, there was this awesome kind of taco... I don't even know what the right way of describing it was, but it was authentic Mexican tacos that they were making Ooh. outside at night, and um, ever, they were all speaking Spanish, and it was like, it was very clear that it was, was kind of like, you know, homemade kind of from Mexico. You you go, it's a dollar per taco. It's like the the soft ones. They, they throw some spicy chicken or meat on there, and I had like 20 of them. It was amazing. It was like the best thing I've ever eaten. Ugh. Love that. Alrighty, well, we'll we'll get out of here. We'll be back next week, and hopefully we'll have um, more top threes, and I don't know what we're going to talk about next week. We've got a few things that we're kind of kicking around, and uh, well, we'll be back, provided both of us are healthy, which I hope we are. Yeah, yeah seriously. Um, stay inside, everyone, if you can. I mean... You can go for that one walk once a day to get outside. Don't but, you know, protest. Your... Don't do any of that nonsense. Oh, my God. Yeah. I, I, I'd like to think that most people are actually treating this seriously. But if you're one of the few who aren't, stop being a dick. Yeah, stop. Please. Stay we inside. We all like to go outside and enjoy the summer at some point. So please just stay inside right now. I beg of you. Yeah, we're all trying our best to get through this. I know it's a tough time on everyone. But the good news is that... We're going to be doing this podcast every week to try to give people a break. And it's kind of like the off season right now. We're going to think of some creative ideas and we'll be back next week with hopefully a good one. We'll see how it goes. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Staff and Graph podcast. You can check out Rachel Dory's work at The First Pass and Ian Tullock's written work can be found at The Athletic and The Leafs Geeks podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this. Also be sure to follow these nerds on Twitter at Rachel Dory and at Ian Graff.